I'm talking today to Alex Epstein, a philosopher, a writer, writer of a rather interesting, if controversial, book on fossil fuels, and someone who's not afraid to say what they think. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. I didn't know that you had a British accent, you know, coming from Mississippi. I, I've not lived in Mississippi long enough uh, to pick up the accent, but I'm working on it. I occasionally... that, would be a, that would be a fun transition <laughs> right there. Um, well, well, thank you for joining me. I mean, the orthodox view on energy is that we are overly dependent on fossil fuel, namely gas, oil, um, and coal, and that fossil fuel is a bad thing, apparently, because it emits a pollutant, carbon dioxide, which warms the um, atmosphere. And if you listen to the orthodox view, the sooner we switch to renewable, by which people mean sort of solar and wind, the better. Um, but you, you've, you've written a rather interesting book that takes this orthodox view to task. Um, could you elaborate a little bit um, on why it is you think the, the orthodoxy is so wrong? One of the things that got me really interested in this issue about 15 years ago is that when I just learned a little bit about the benefits of fossil fuels, which I discuss a lot in Fossil Future, but for example, learning that oil has a very distinctive what's called energy density, a high concentration of energy that makes it very, very suitable, particularly for mobile applications, such as running the combine harvesters that allow you know one person to be 1,000 times more productive by using them. And also, you know, fossil fuels include natural gas, which is the basis of modern fertilizer. I learned about these benefits and it struck me that our society, including many smart people, are telling us to rapidly eliminate these, but they're not considering the benefits that would be lost. And this is just a very basic thinking error. Uh, it's a failure to what I call consider the full context. You're not, you're just looking at the negative side effects. Uh, and ignoring the benefits versus what you what what everyone knows you should do, say, if you're choosing a prescription drug, which is you need to carefully weigh the benefits and the side effects. And so it struck. And, and when I looked into even the experts work, I saw that they were really ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. And also, there were some indications, particularly if you look at the historical predictions of catastrophe, that they were overstating the side effects. I, I later learned that was definitely true. But but the ignoring the benefits was the obvious part. And then that really motivated me to get into this issue. And, and I submit that if you really look at the benefits of fossil fuels and the side effects, and you look at them, and this turns out to be very important from a pro-human perspective. So when you're looking at the world, you're looking at it as how hospitable is it for humans to what I call flourish? Like if you look at it from that perspective, it's obvious that we need more fossil fuels. And, and the idea of rapidly eliminating fossil fuels is just mass death. You, you you have this very striking graph. I think it appears first on page 22 in the book, and it's such a striking graph. I think you you uh, replicate it um, more than once. And it shows the total uh, amount of energy from different sources consumed around the world going back um, over quite a long period of time. And, and what is so striking about that is that the lion's share is fossil fuel and uh, only a tiny, tiny slither is um, so-called renewable. Um, how much energy do we as a as a species derive from fossil sources and, and how much from renewable sources? 
So I can definitely answer that. So it's about 80%, you know, depending on there, there are different kinds of measurements, but let's say it's about 80 per, like if you look at the latest BP, which is, you know, it's a company, but they're considered very authoritative and nonpartisan. I think they have less than 5% solar and wind and over 80% fossil fuels. And, and so there's the percentage, but the real thing is, is also the absolute quantity of it. And so in the chart that you mentioned, what you see is everything is going up, but particularly fossil fuel is going up and people have this idea that we're in in what they call an energy transition and which means in that that usage a transition off of fossil fuels but actually it's an energy addition because fossil fuel use has continued to grow you know that we only had the dip for 2020 but that's not related to the economics of fossil fuels that's just another situation but now it's you know continued to grow again and the basic reason is well one is fossil fuels are uniquely cost effective they 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 can scale uh, producing low-cost reliable energy in a way that nothing else currently can. But the other thing is that the world doesn't have nearly enough energy. So you and I, you know, you in Mississippi, me in California, we use an amount of energy that six billion people that you know would be unimaginable to six billion people, and six billion people use an amount that we would consider unacceptable, including three billion people using less electricity individually than one of our refrigerators does. So if you think about that. It's obvious the world needs more energy, and that's why if you're talking about reducing fossil fuels in a world that needs much more energy, that's deadly, and it's pretty clear we need more energy, and a lot of it needs to come from fossil fuels. If you listen to some of the establishment um, opinion formers, they, they imply that there's almost something sinful, almost something immoral about excessive energy consumption. But again, you produce some quite striking graphs to show the correlation between higher energy consumption and development, not only over the past generation or so with, with China and India in particular, consuming more energy and having higher standards of living and longer life expectancy. But yeah, up until about 1800, um, global per capita GDP was incredibly low. You have this great takeoff starting about 1800 AD. Um, and, and that is the Industrial Revolution. And, and that is powered by the use of fossil fuels. So it, it, your book almost suggests that if you eliminate fossil fuel, you would, you would, you would, you might be green, but you would sort of go back to a medieval standard of living, if not worse. I would say that you would, you would be green and you would be, it's not a but from the perspective of, I think the core of the green movement, because I think of the, the essence of green is the idea of minimal impact, you know, as low impact as possible. And you mentioned this applies to the energy example you mentioned, right? Because you said with energy, people have this idea that excess energy is an issue. But, you know, as the, the, um, there's a new kind of player on the scene who's really good called Doomberg on, uh, on Twitter and on Substack, and they use the expression energy is life, which is a really good expression. I mean, from another perspective, energy is ability, right? So it's, it's our ability to produce value and flourish on a very inhospitable planet. And so if you're talking about excess energy, that is like excess human ability, excess life. That's not a, that's not an idea if you have a pro-human perspective on the world. And one of the things I argue is that the leadership of this anti-fossil fuel movement does not have a pro-human perspective on the world. And they're, they're not evaluating, when they see changes in the world, they're not evaluating them by the standard of how hospitable is the world to human life, because by that standard, fossil fuel has been amazing. They're, they're evaluating it by the standard of lack of impact, how little impact do we have? And the less impact we have, the better. But if the less impact we have, the better, then we should just die. And that's why I said being green and 
suffering. I, I want to come on in a bit to try to sort of deconstruct some of the um, zealotry, the, the dogma of of the, the net zero advocates in a moment. But before we before we get on to that, I mean, I'm, I'm very struck you can, um, as you referred to um, earlier, tell that I'm, I'm not originally from the United States. I'm from from the UK, from from Europe. And of course, Europe serves as a very profound warning to America of what happens if you try to use renewables instead of fossil fuels. They're, they're intermittent, they're costly, and you end up with the kind of problems we, we, we have in Europe. Um, do, do, you, do you wish more Europeans had, had read your book um, or, or come to the conclusions that you come to earlier? Do you think it might have saved them from the inevitable blackouts they're about to face? Yeah, I wish everyone everyone had. Now, I wrote a moral case for fossil fuels, which had kind of an earlier version of this line of thinking and less less detail. So it's sort of now been replaced by fossil future, but that was out in 2014. There was certainly enough in that to know that the path Europe was taking was very deadly. And I would hasten to say, it's not that Europe is really running on solar and wind. I mean, they're actually running on a lot of burning wood, including wood pellets shipped over from the US. Do, do you know, called the, the largest... The largest export from Mississippi to my old country, the United Kingdom, are wood chip pellets. We we literally ship wood chip pellets to keep Britain warm. It's insane. And they're called carbon neutral, right? It's because you're cutting down the trees and transporting the pellets via magic, um, apparently. So, oh God, I lost my chance. The, the wood, the wood. Yeah, yeah. So Europe is, they're not operating on solar and wind. What, I mean- they're using some of it and that adds expense, but the real mistake they've made, it's not just the adding and the subsidizing of the solar and wind, it's the restricting of their ability to produce fossil fuel. And this is the heart of the incredible vulnerability to Russia, particularly experienced in Germany, but also throughout Europe. And they've been on this idea that it's basically like, there's that movie Field of Dreams, you know, if, if they build it, it, like something like, if you build it, he will come. And this is basically like, if we ban it, renewables will work. Like that's their theory versus actually proving that solar and wind can work. Mm. They started eliminating their ability to produce the stuff and also taking no significant action to be able to import, say, liquefied natural gas from the U.S. So it's really, number one, a cautionary tale. And what happens when you restrict your fossil fuel production capacity without a viable replacement? So the lesson for the U.S. is don't be against renewable energy, but don't inhibit fossil fuels either. Let, let well, well, well definitely be against, I would say that, no, it's bad to subsidize and prefer solar and wind. So, so you don't want to be against it. You want to be against preferring it. But the most, so basically what happens is when you, I talk about this a lot in chapter six in the book, when you prefer solar and wind electricity, what you but you are still committed to reliability. What you basically do is you pay for two grids. You pay for an unreliable grid mm -hmm. and a reliable grid. And this turns out to be quite expensive. And because it turns out to be quite expensive, because it's obviously cheaper just to pay for the reliable grid and not have the unreliable grid, but at least you have reliability if you pay for both. But what happens is people like to play what I call reliability chicken, which is that they want to cut down their ability to produce reliable electricity in part to save costs. This is what we've done in California. This is what has happened in Texas. And then you're basically relegated to the people 3,000 years ago who are praying to the weather gods. You're hoping it doesn't get too hot or too cold, and you're hoping the sun shines enough and the wind blows enough. And this, this doesn't work, but that's, that's the real thing, is that you restrict your fossil fuel capacity 
that that makes it much worse because then you have blackouts. And as much as as solar and wind add through infrastructure duplication costs to the cost of electricity, much, much worse is an unreliable grid. Like an unreliable grid is a catastrophic cost, which is why rich people are buying generators in record numbers. They're willing to pay huge amounts for generators and huge backup batteries because reliability is so crucial. But for the average person, they can't afford this. And so they suffer just unreliable and costly electricity. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about your book is you're not you're not denying the fact that CO2 emissions have a have an impact. I think you say that over a period of 170 years, basically since the start of the Industrial Revolution, there's been a, a, a one degree centigrade increase in global temperatures. Um, what, what you're arguing is that a cost benefit analysis would take into account all the pluses from using fossil fuel and weigh that against relatively minor and inconsequential increases in uh, global temperatures. Is that right? I mean, methodologically, so whether you call them inconsequential or not, that's part of a function of my analysis. So I think they're mostly inconsequential. But the main thing is you have to always look carefully at benefits and, and side effects, and, pos and, and that includes you know positive and negative side effects. So the general thing with fossil fuels is to just look at negative, so the negative effects of the side effect of CO2, and then I would argue to tremendously exaggerate them, including the most important thing is people ignore our ability to master different climate effects, which we're really good at, say, irrigation, we're really good at heating, we're really good at cooling, sturdy buildings. Like It's really hard, actually, to think of a climate problem that would overwhelm us if we use a lot of energy. But so people just look at the negatives, they exaggerate them, but they ignore, for example, the positive effects of more CO2, including greening, which is pretty obvious, but nobody talks about, but also warming in colder places in a world that has far more cold deaths than heat deaths. And then on top of that, the biggest benefit being ignored, which you indicated, is just the benefit of billions of people having energy versus not. So the, the whole methodology is wrong. And even if the negative climate effects were much more significant than I think, the evaluate, overall evaluation is still totally wrong. Fossil fuels are still amazingly beneficial. You talked about greening. I think this is worth elaborating for people who've not read your book, but are listening to this. This is the process by which over the past, few generations, there's been a marked increase in the amount of vegetation growing on the surface of the uh, surface of the earth. Is that right? Yeah, and it, it makes sense just given the you know, basic chemistry that you learn about and biology and just plants use CO2. And most plants can use quite a bit more CO2 than nature gives them. Even the nature gives them with us having increased the amount of CO2 from, let's say, 280 parts per million to about 420 parts per million natural, you know, greenhouses will use three times that much. And they don't just use it, they pay for it. Like they're willing to pay to triple the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. That shows you there's a real benefit to this, but because we have this idea that impact is evil and lack of impact is what's good, we just ignore this uh, big positive and all we can focus on are negatives or alleged negatives. Like every time there's an adverse weather event, now it's the fault of fossil fuels, but they, they don't even have one in 10 events that they're good that were caused by fossil fuels, which shows that it's it's a dogma, not science. I mean, one way of looking at it might be that the history of planet Earth has been dominated by periods of either cold and dry climates or warm and wet climates. And I mean, there's a case for saying that it would be far more alarming if we were moving into a cold, dry era because- Oh, cold, definitely dry, would. Yeah, cold, cold, dry climates are not conducive to life. Yeah, it's, but you, again, you're looking at it from a pro-human perspective, which I believe is definitely the right perspective. But yeah, if you, 
it's it's crazy if you look at if you just look at the world from a pro-human perspective you have a totally different evaluation of all of our impacts on it, including climate. I was reading an article about a year ago and there were a bunch of scientists and I kid you not. And they're talking about, you know, the earth, the ideal, the earth is great, but it's not ideal. It should be about three degrees Celsius warmer. That was like, but, but there was no mention of the climate catastrophe movement or the idea that if we get half a degree or one degree warmer, because we're already at one degree, so people say 1.5 or two is the apocalypse. But these people were just looking at it clinically. They said, yeah, it would be overall better if we're a couple degrees warmer. They said that would be ideal. And if you think about it from that perspective, you're open to the idea that warming is good and that CO2 is good. Now, I, I should say, I think the ideal situation would be if you had total control over CO2. So CO2 is a side effect. I think all things being equal, you would like to be able to control the side effect, at least until you fully, fully understood it. Uh, but the idea is there's a lot of benefits to this kind of inadvertent side effect. There are, may, there are some negatives, but the, the positives we get with it in terms of energy that makes an inhospitable earth hospitable for billions of people, there's just no comparison if you're looking at the world from a human perspective. In your book, you talk about how supposed experts like you know, James Hansen um, and um, you know how he's produced data um, that's been um, made predictions that are wildly alarmist. You use the phrase catastro catastrophizing. Um, why is it, do you think, that experts can get away with making catastrophic predictions that turn out to be wrong? I mean, you know, the, King Charles, I, I, far be it from me to want to be critical of uh, the new uh, uh, King of England. You know, when he was Prince of Wales, I think he on several occasions said that, you know, we had a, 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 a short number of years to save the world from climate catastrophe. Those deadlines have came and went. Why is it that experts who make these predictions um, that are wildly inaccurate seem to get away with it? Well, let's just say with his predictions and others, it, it's not just the deadlines came and went, but as I, I point out repeatedly in the book, we're safer than ever from climate-related disasters. This is a very important fact. You know, the rate of climate-related disaster death is down by a factor of 50 over the last century. So your, your chance of dying from a climate-related disaster like extreme temperature or storm or flood is 150th what it used to be, which the world is totally in denial about this. They act because anytime anyone dies from a climate event, they say, oh, well, it's the fault of fossil fuels, but fossil fuels make possible the whole infrastructure that protects us from these things and, and makes it safe. So they, I'm just stressing, they've been 180 degrees wrong. So it's not just they were a little wrong. They were the exact, they predicted it'd get much worse and it overall got much better. And this applies basically to every area of life mm -hmm. where catastrophe has been predicted. And I think one, there are two things. So one that I indicated already is that people's standard for evaluating the earth is lack of impact. And from that perspective, the modern world is a catastrophe because we impact the world today a lot more than we did 40 years ago. And we impact climate more than we impacted it 40 years ago. So they just think impact is bad. So by that standard, today's much, much better earth for humans is bad. So that's, that's one thing. I think the thing that's most common among people is what I call the delicate nurture assumption. So this is the idea that nature exists in a delicate nurturing balance that human beings ruin. And this leads to the expectation that our impact is going to, is always on the edge of causing an apocalypse. And if you believe in this delicate nurturing earth, you always think the next impact is going to do it. So even if the last eight prophecies have been wrong, you still think, well, it can't work this way. For example, you think, 
oh, well, if we keep impacting the climate, it just has to explode somehow. Or, or in resources, this is a big one in economics. It's like, oh, if we keep consuming resources, we have to run out. And there it's, you don't understand resources. You think resources are a finite pile nature gave us versus nature gave us a basically infinite pile of raw materials that we can transform into resources if we use our intelligence. I'm, I'm interested in drilling down into why it is that so many very clever people um, are wrong. Is it is it perhaps, I don't know, the influence of, of, of Rousseau who, who taught that, you know, in the pristine pre-modern past, the natural world was perfect and human progress is somehow a stain. Is there perhaps a deep need in the human psyche to have some belief in some sort of impending catastrophe? Is it perhaps that belief in net zero has become almost a sort of secular religion um, where you think that actually, you know, if you do bad things like live too well and consume too much energy, you know, you're going to get your comeuppance. Is there perhaps an innate pessimism where people can't see that actually the world is getting better and it's getting better through human industry. And what, is there some deep underlying reason for, for this catastrophism? So all of those ideas I don't fully agree with, but each one is an interesting discussion. Uh, but I think as kind of counter evidence, well, I include myself. I don't feel like I have a need for a, a catastrophe and um, I don't need to worship nature or this kind of thing. And, but I also think if you look at what, what we hear about the culture pre-World War I, particularly in the United States, of just an incredible culture of optimism and life is getting better and things are more exciting and this kind of thing. And just you look at writing, a lot of writing back then, it's very excited about the future. And yet you have people like Rousseau, not he's before then, but like he, he is an outlier uh, at the time. And so I think I think what actually, for, for me, the major cause is actually a combination of politics and education, which is that in the 60s and 70s, basically the anti-capitalist movement decided to cast its lot with anti-industry. And this is really well documented in Ayn Rand's book, um, The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, which has since been updated. It's called Return of, of the Primitive. But she, she documents it at the time as this is happening and she, she's criticizing it. And she says, basically, the old left was pro-industry. And they said, in my words, it was good to transform the earth using industry to make it better for humans. But then it was clear that anti-capitalism was anti-industry. The Soviet didn't bury us in terms of production, right? They And, and once that became clear, the anti-capitalist movement could either say, we're for industry and production and capitalism, mm -hmm. or we're against capitalism, and so we're going to be against industry and production. And basically, these Rousseau type ideas and other more marginal ideas became a vehicle for people to be opposed mm -hmm. to capitalism. Now we can talk about why, what, what motivated that, but I think this definitely happened. And then they had this practical idea of the delicate nurturer. And there was a lot of science or alleged science promoted that said, hey, capitalism is destroying the earth. So it's not that it fails to, to uh, provide industry, but that providing industry actually destroys the earth and us with it. And then they just took over the schools and if you take over the schools, you ultimately take over the media. So you just see, I mean, the amount of funding, not just funding, but institutional uh, penetration of these basic ideas mm -hmm. that human impact is, Im I, I think of it as human impact is immoral and self-destructive. This is just permeated everywhere to the point where it is, it's, it is a, like a secular primitive religion 
but it's it's taught as science. Yeah. So it's really, really dangerous, but it makes no sense. And and the good thing is I find it's pretty easy to change in people because it doesn't really doesn't make any sense that we should worship the earth and we should worship really non-human nature. So we should love everything about the earth except us. Like we should single ourselves out for hatred and that somehow our productive activity is inevitably going to destroy us, even though it actually leads to progress. Like these things don't make any sense. But they have been, by default, they're so massive because the, the educational system has, particularly the government education system, uh, has taken them over. And this is one reason I question government education, which people think is so innocent. Uh, but essentially, government education means government controls ideas. The government gets to decide what's a true idea and not. And it tragically shows that human impact is evil and self-destructive is a true idea that should be spread everywhere. It's a profoundly dangerous idea. Um, it, it's, you know, as you say in your book, it's it's anti-human. It's um, it's also deeply pessimistic, because um, you know, I I I I like you am constantly marveling at how much better the world is. Um, you know, whether it's um, you know, uh, uh, having a cell phone in my pocket that gives me, you know, more computing power than NASA had the year they landed a man on the moon, or the ability to Cross the Atlantic at thirty thousand feet for a, a few hundred dollars. There are all these incredible innovations, and yet, um, you know, we, 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 uh, our society is encouraged to think that the world is going to hell in a handcart. It's extraordinary, and it's sad, and you know, it really affects people's happiness. And it's interesting that it's kind of a cliche now, but I think which is significantly true that gratitude or at least appreciation is a big part of being happy. And that, and, you know, in psychology, they talk about catastrophizing, which is a term I, I use in another context, but mm -hmm. the catastrophizing is like, a, you know, a cognitive error, a cognitive sure. distortion. And yet what we're taught is we should have no gratitude for this amazingly abundant and safe world and that we should expect catastrophe. So we're going to, we're not having the joy of appreciating the present. And then we have the anxiety of being terrified about the future. I, I, I wonder, and I've got absolutely no empirical evidence, but I just wonder if some of the so-called mental health problems that are experienced by young people around the Western world are maybe a consequence of this, of, of being encouraged to constantly believe the worst is coming and to catastrophize and, and to see news stories as evidence of some sort of apocalyptic um, um, direction rather than just you know, bad things sometimes happen. It 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 is it is it is. Um, well done to you for countering it. How how successful are you in getting particularly elected politicians or people standing for office to take up these ideas? Are there people in the Republican and the Democrat Party receptive to these ideas? At this point, I'd say I have a lot of people who are receptive. I think that's partially a function of the ideas, but also I've I've made a concerted effort over the last couple of years to kind of understand how government works and, and to connect with different people. So yeah, I'm directly in touch with dozens of elected officials and hundreds of staffers and I'm working on something called the Energy Freedom Platform, which people can check out at my website, energytalkingpoints.com. And I have a lot of interest. I mean, I don't know. People are really pessimistic about politics. I tend to be optimistic about things until, until I try them and I can really prove that they can't be done. But I mean, no one thought it was a good idea to just be an advocate of fossil fuels. People thought I would go broke, which I did for a while. But eventually you, you work it out and you, if, if, it's, if you have something valuable and there's the right audience, it's yeah. good. And I think, that, I think that here, there are a lot of elected officials, what I found, who are pro-freedom 
but they don't have the right messaging and even always the right policy ideas for how to apply that in this realm because they're in, they're in a culture that's so hostile to it. Just very, very briefly, you talk about energy freedom. Could you just very quickly sum up what that would look like in public policy terms? Yeah, so the, the core of energy freedom is basically the idea that we're free to produce and use all forms of energy and that there are, you know, reasonable laws against, you know, pollution and endangerment, which I talk about a lot in chapter 10 of Fossil Future. But in the energy freedom platform has, has five specific ideas in it or steps in it. And those are based on where we are. And I think what are the highest leverage things? So there's, and people can check it out in detail, but liberate responsible development end preferences for unreliable electricity, reform air and water emission standards to incorporate cost-benefit analysis, uh, reduce CO2 emissions long-term, not short-term, by liberating innovation, not punishing America, and then decriminalizing nuclear energy. So those are like the five ideas. And I'm working with elected officials to try to make some laws and hearings on, on all of these ideas. Well, very well done to you. I suspect that actually, because your ideas are right, you, you, you will prevail. And what will happen will be that initially you'll be told that you're quite mad for thinking these things. Then people will say, you're right in principle, but you're just being impractical. And before you know it, those very same politicians will be saying it was their idea all along. So well done. That's to the you. goal, right? That's, <laughs> that's the, I'll be very happy when that happens, unfortunately, I mean, we have this tragic crisis, but fortunately, that is that is an opportunity for people to wake up. And I think you're seeing more and more people find the idea of a fossil future much more plausible at first glance than they did even two years ago. Alex, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much. If you are ever inclined to come to talk in Mississippi, I can guarantee you a very large receptive book buying audience who would love to hear your message. So um, thank you so much for joining me and um, please do bear Mississippi in mind if you're ever on a, on a speaking tour. I definitely will, thank you. Wonderful, thanks so much.